welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Fractured Atlas is our new nonprofit fiscal sponsor, which allows us to access a wide range of funding possibilities, including funding available only for nonprofits. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the dash y dash make dash project or go to the donate to why make page on why hyphen make.com on episode 56 of why make we have a conversation 50 years in the making as eric sits down with his childhood friend and the amazing metalsmith jeweler sculptor and teacher boris bally Originally like Eric from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Boris now resides and works in Providence, Rhode Island. A maker from the earliest days of his youth, Boris fell in love with the magic of working metal as a teenager and never looked back. Growing up in a Swiss family, he took advantage of an opportunity to do a one-year apprenticeship in Basel, Switzerland in metalsmithing after high school. Upon returning to the U.S., he enrolled in the Tyler School of Art at Temple University in Philadelphia and finished his undergraduate degree at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Always the practical artist, Boris has fashioned his career by teaching, doing commission work, and designing and producing a number of very successful production items alongside his own more personal work. I last saw Boris sometime in 1974 when we were both 12 years old. So please join us as we catch up on the last 50 years and find out just what Boris Bally has done with the time. So I'm just going to start out by welcoming Boris Bally to the Why Make podcast. Um, this is a continuation of a conversation that, what, stopped 50 years ago? I guess um, so. Yeah, something like that. We haven't quite pinpointed it, but uh, you grew up around the corner from me. I grew up on Elmer Street in Pittsburgh. You grew up on college. And we had a mutual best friend who lived just up the road, Dan Cook. I, I remember both your house and Dan's house because your dad had built an incredible spiral staircase right in the middle of the first floor of your house, all out of wood. And at the top of that staircase was your mom's loom, which was just an amazing piece of architecture in and of itself. And then like what? Four doors down lived Dan Cook, whose uh, father was a architect, and who took an old, what was that, a church? What was it? He remodeled an old house. It was an old house. The church was next door, but it was, some, it was of some architectural note in that it was built probably, you know, late 1800s or something like right. that. Right, and it had these amazing round turrets on it, and uh, complete with curved glass, but he had completely gutted the inside of it so that you could look from the top floor all the way down into the basement. And it had one of those classic 1970s sunken basement with, you know, the, all the big cushions and, a, and the television and everything. Shag carpet. Shag carpet, Remember yes, that? exactly. Yeah, that was the big thing then. And, and it was just amazing. And I think, I think those are like my earliest memories of like being in touch with makers. Like... You know, because we lived in a, a funky house around the corner, and my parents weren't 
I mean, hell, my parents weren't that interesting. <laughs> well, they probably had real jobs and, you know, worked for somebody and had steady income. <laughs> well, actually, my dad, like your dad, worked at Carnegie Mellon University. And that was the, actually the other thing. Uh, we'll, we'll get into this later, but uh, at some point, you were at uh, Carnegie Mellon University doing your undergrad. And I, was, I, at, I read somewhere that your, your studio was in Baker Hall. It was in the bottom of Doherty, actually. It was the bottom of Doherty? Uh, yep, Doherty Hall. And Which Doherty is where was... the metals was. It was basically the basement um, right next to the dumpsters is where they put the ceramics and the metals and the glass, which was a program at one point. Well, right up from Doherty was Baker, and mm -hmm. this was right next to Flagstaff Hill. Right. So these, so both of Doherty and Baker had these wonderful sloping um, floors. Floors, went, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> as a kid, I as a kid, I used to race my go karts down those. <laughs> until, of course, we just absolutely pissed off everybody at That's CMU. Funny. Of course, but you yeah. Did. Although go-karts are a big thing at CMU, as you know, you know, the, right. the, what do they call that? Sweepstakes, you know, the push carts. Thing. Yes. Oh yeah. So, but as a, a funny side note, Baker Hall was also where industrial design was. And my father, when he left Carnegie Mellon, they were revamping the design um, studios and they were throwing out the big, huge tables they had there, which were beautiful oak, you know, 14 foot long, 16 foot long tables. And he brought one of those to Providence with him and refinished it and that's what we eat our dinners on now. Yeah, so I have many fond memories as a kid of running around CMU, Carnegie Mellon University, for those people you don't know. It's not Central Michigan University, Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. But I think we were trying to pinpoint exactly when you guys, when you moved out, so you moved to the suburbs, you moved to Roslyn Farms. It was, I must have been in seventh grade or so. Right. Because so I wanted to finish up Falk School, which was the school that we both went to. Right. Middle school, kind of a laboratory school, school of um, University of Pittsburgh. But that was um, seventh grade. So how old are you in seventh grade? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you're... So I must have 12, been... 12, 13? Something like that. Because yeah. what, you're... 14 when you head to high school. <laughs> I'm pulling out the fingers. Okay. Um, so probably 12, 13. Which so that mean um, 61, what was it, maybe 1974? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so 1973, 74. Mm -hmm. And you moved out to Roslyn Farms. I was firmly a city kid mm -hmm. because interestingly enough, my dad didn't drive and my mom was terrified of driving. So she'd only, my mom really didn't drive outside the neighborhood. Oh, wow. So I had no notion of the, the suburbs of Pittsburgh. But um, when, you know, later on when I moved south of the city to Morgantown, West Virginia, I, every time I headed out the parkway to, uh, to catch I-79 in the road south, I would pass the Roslyn Farms exit. Yes, you would. And every time I would go, Whatever happened to Boris Bally? That was that was the that was the sign. So, since we lost contact roughly 50 years ago, and give me in a in a short summary version. Yeah, what what did I do all those years? Well, just give me give give me a give me the give me a chunk, you know. So you you left for Roslyn Farms. You went to high school out in the burbs. Um, um, yeah. And what? 
and high school was pretty much a wasteland in the West End, which is what the suburbs were called. My art teacher in high school was a wrestling coach, uh, Mr. Morocco, and Mrs. Schwelm was the other art teacher who, oddly enough, was, she was the one that was actually an artist, but for some reason they didn't give me any classes with her. Um, so the wrestling coach was my teacher, and uh, he's basically saying, uh, oh yeah, well, you're talented, I don't know, you can do what you do, and that was it. I just did whatever I wanted to in the art class. But um, I went to, um, at the bidding of my sweet mother, who said, you know, you really do have talent, you should go out and apply for this. The Bucknell University hosted the Pennsylvania Governor's School for the Arts in 1977, and I got that, and I got a taste of what it was like to be an artist on a university campus, and that was kind of what cemented my desire to be an artist. And so after high school, I decided that I was either gonna go into marine biology or art, and I decided that it would be a great time to do an apprenticeship in Switzerland and go the art route, get some tools to learn my, a, a trade, my trade of goldsmithing. So a unique opportunity presented itself. And Alexander Schaffner, who was a pretty famous goldsmith guy in Basel, Switzerland, did have an opening. And through my father writing to his cousin, arranged, there was no email back then, so remember it was kind of a, a strange, old-fashioned way of communicating. He arranged for me to have a, an apprenticeship there. Uh, like a taste, they call it a schnupperler, which means like a little taste of an apprenticeship. So I scored a half a year there, so I stayed with my family, full immersion, not a word of English, all Swiss, um, basically rediscovering my culture. My parents are both from Switzerland, we speak Swiss at home, and um, you know, of course I st started losing that in the high school, oh, nobody wants to speak Swiss, I want to speak English. And so when I got there, full immersion, Swiss, stayed for a half year, then I was offered an, an extension. I could stay another half year for the reason that he was writing a book on the apprenticeship system. So I was able to um, basically do what most people do in four years in one year because it was in his interest to try to give me um, various exercises that are required of the Swiss apprentice. And he was writing the book and he would hand me a page and he'd say, this week we're gonna do this, this, and this. And I would have to do the pieces. And of, of course I'd have to bring croissants and make coffee and you know live the life of an apprentice. But I also did not have to be enslaved as most apprentices are. So it was a much more, it wasn't a classical European it apprenticeship. Was not, no, in that it didn't last for four years. So he, he really didn't benefit by my presence that much. Um, most apprentices would end up doing a lot of the scut work, stuff like that. Um, anyway, so after that I decided I really wanted to go to art school. So after that year went by, I went, signed up for a Tyler School of Art with Stanley Lexen. The idea being that they had a really kind of a good program. It was in-state, because um, I was from Pennsylvania. And I thought Stanley Lexon would be a great person to study with because he, his work was very different than what I'd learned. So I went there, got my foundation, and after two years of that, I was really antsy to do more metal work because I wanted to be a metalsmith. I knew this. I metal through and through. Always loved metal. And 
I approached Stanley and asked him, you know, may I take something more advanced than this basic metal stuff? I've kind of done this now. And his answer was no. So I had a visiting artist come to Tyler. The, the, the program invited Carol Kamada from Carnegie Mellon to come speak at Tyler School of Art. And she gave such a wonderful presentation that I thought, my God, I want to study with her. So I approached Stanley and I said, uh, who was the head of the metals department, I said, I'd like to you know, take more advanced classes, if I may, junior, senior classes. Uh, I think I wanted to take senior classes because I felt like I was of the level that I could do that with all my Swiss training, or I will leave Tyler. And he said, leave Tyler. So I did. And I went to Carnegie Mellon and finished the junior, senior year. And that was the extent of my college um, art training. And I loved Carol Kamada because basically she left me alone. And she was around. It's, it was almost like a graduate thing in that she left me to my own devices. But when I needed input on where I was going, you know, the direction of my work, she would always be available for me. So it was perfect for what I needed. And I worked in there day and night, long hours in my little tiny studio in the, uh, the basement of Doherty Hall. And um, it just cemented my love for metals. So just going back a tad, because uh, I, I skipped a part of the, the pro forma part of the, the Why Make podcast, because it's just like, wow, we haven't talked in 50 years. But my memory is of you always making stuff. I don't remember you not making stuff. Um, and for some reason, I always remember you making in metals. Um, but you know, I mean, we're old, memories suck. But so what is your first memory of actually making something? Well, it's funny because I, you mentioned that you might ask me this, and I actually don't have, I have a few specific objects that were meaningful to me that I do remember making. Um, the first kind of conscious thing that I have, could recall from memory was that I made a, I whittled a little from a stick, a wood, I whittled a little bird form from two crossing sticks that I put paper for the wings on, and I think I put l the beak out of you know metal that I stuck in the stick. And I just remember that I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. It's a physical thing I made out of found you know, sticks and garbage, and it's kind of cool. My parents thought it was cool. I was a little whippersnapper. But um, I think the most, um, what I did early on, kind of the most exciting stuff I did before I took any formal training at all was taking silverware, you know, forks and bending them up into various forms and learning how to solder. I'm sure my dad taught me certain things. And I also know that my parents, my father was an industrial designer. My mother was a tapestry weaver. They were always supportive of, they basically wanted me out of their hair. So go make something, honey. Just go to the basement. I had a bench there, just make something. So I remember you know, pounding on horseshoe nails and just experimenting. And then at one point, I remember when I was, I think it was 14, 13, my mother had been affiliated loosely with the, the Pittsburgh Center for the Arts in Shadyside. And Steve Corpo was my first teacher. This, uh, I think he was a teacher in the Carrick. He was an art teacher in the Carrick School District, and he was just a wonderful human being. And I was too young to take courses because he had to be 16, 
And my mother beseeched the powers that be there, look, my son, he won't be an embarrassment. He won't hurt himself. You don't understand. He, he makes stuff all the time sort of thing. So that's where I took my first formal class. And I learned how to solder and make rings. And Steve Corpa, I watched him stick that saw blade into the metal. And he said, I'm going to show you all how to be little magicians, which sounds corny now. But my eyes just opened big as saucers when I saw that metal blade cutting through the metal so quickly. I thought, oh my god, you know, this is, this is what I want to do. And um, I was hooked. And, uh, and so I started a series of rings, and I, I just couldn't stop making stuff. And uh, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, I did end up applying to the Shadyside Summer Arts Festival, maybe a year into this, with, with the first things I'd ever made, which is actually quite embarrassing that I would even put those on display. But I ended up being, I had a booth, you know, a couple booths down from Thomas Mann, who was a young, cool guy, hip guy. And... You know, I got to meet him, and my parents bought a piece of his artwork, and he was just smoking doobies, and, you know, all the women were gathered around him. He had his entourage, which I believe he still has to this day. And uh, I thought, you know, I want to be like this guy. This is so cool. But I had my booth there. I made $300, which to a kid That's is a, a lot of money. hell of a lot of money. So I knew I was, commerce somehow played into my practice because of that. And yeah, and the, uh, and the Shadyside Arts Festival was a, was a big deal. I well, mean, um, it was probably the premier citywide arts festival, save for Three Rivers Arts right. Festival. Um, but it, you, the streets of uh, Walnut Street, which is the main drag growing, going through Shadyside, and the neighborhood we grew up in was very much a neighborhood. It had its own shopping district. It was very much self-contained. It was the university district. It was sort of a lot of university professors lived there, but uh, the Shadyside Art Festival was a big deal. I mean, yeah. everybody walked through the streets of the Shadyside Arts Festival, and even as a little kid, I remember there being really good art there. Right, and what I thought was kind of cool was it was juried, and I got in, and you know, I had to pay my fee, so I was learning how to do that sort of thing, and I did it for a couple years, and each year I tried to improve on it, you know, the first year my dad helped me build a, build a display case and I propped it up on some bricks or something. And the second year, my dad helped me build a booth with, you know, carriage bolts and lumber and a roof. And my brother was an assistant and my mother helped and it was like a family affair. And I'm sure it didn't hurt that I was this um, little runny-nosed, cute little uh, cheek-pinching, you know, kid. And, you know, I sold well. And it, it kind of paved the, the future. And moving forward a little bit, so you've just graduated from Carnegie Mellon. You've uh, more or less had a graduate program because you were allowed to do whatever you wanted to do, more or less. That's, I felt like it was, but right. I, I don't have a graduate degree, and I, I yeah. don't regret it. Right, no. Um, I don't have a degree in the arts at all, so, <laughs> and I don't regret it either. So what kind of work were you doing? as you were finishing up at CMU? Were you, how would you, were you doing functional work? Were you doing, how would you describe your work and what your interests were at that point as a maker? At first I was doing really, what I wanted to do was kind of prove to myself that I could make sculptural work. And I really didn't know what that meant so much. And I think under Carol Kamada's guidance, I was able to, you know, at first I made really complex 
um, really tight, uh, machined, fabricated, uh, like I made a piece that was called my happiness machine, which is kind of a silly title, but it was, it looked like a telescope that you could breathe into with a found scuba mouthpiece and it would blow up these balloons in these test tube vials. I mean, it was tight. There was, you know, we're talking about pneumatics and interaction and, you know, a concept, underlying concept. And with Carol, Carol Kamada's direction, she said, you know, you want to distill your ideas to the very basic what's necessary you don't want to you don't need to go overboard on all this stuff why don't you work on the concepts and find out if you can in a series distill them to the various concepts so i did start with the tight work like that i did added some glass blowing stuff added some ceramic stuff so i created a body of work that was kind of like my like a thesis show um, that i had with matt marcus and peggy kenefick um, both of which I'm still in touch with. And my pieces were, for instance, I remember one was a piece where I was a kind of a shy person. I didn't really want to have, be a part of an art opening because I didn't want to, you know, bring attention on myself. So one of them was this gigantic cover that was pulled up on, on a pulley from the ceiling so you could go in under this thing and then lower it down over yourself so that you could hide from everybody at the opening. That's exactly and, how I felt at every opening. Right. I and mean, I was, just felt, uh, I felt, uh, I just wanted to make the work. I didn't want to go to the opening. Exactly. And that's how I felt. And that was my piece to express that. And, uh, and then I started all these different um, sculptural forms that would challenge how how wearable art interacts with people and I you know for instance one piece held there were like bracelets that were held up on ski poles that came down to the ground with really heavy concrete pieces so it was almost like you were on a museum display and then there was another piece where I made gigantic ceramic weights with ropes that you could tie around yourself so you could couldn't move that kind of held you down like a big mastodon with the, you know, Neanderthals hunting you or something. So it was, it was highly experimental, um, but it was kind of reinforced by these more technical pieces. Um, and, and somewhat humorous and self-deprecating yeah. at the same time. Yeah, and that's kind of been a thread through, you know, my whole career. Um, but then, you know, then I ended up leaving Pittsburgh suddenly and getting a job and the real life hit, I became a model maker at a design firm. And I, you know, it was long days, full-time job. It took us a while, it took me a while to find the job. I ended up getting married too early, getting married. And uh, I knew I wanted to be an artist. So I set up my studio in my bedroom and after work, I'd come home and just work, work, work. And I made my first few examples of wearable art which took the form often of uh, arm forms, which were sculptures that you could wear on your wrist. Started selling at the Society of Arts and Crafts, who was my first venue. I started selling. So you're in Boston at this in point. In Boston at this point. Yeah. Um, and things were starting to pick up. And I, you know, I started teaching. Uh, I made myself a plan, like, what do you do once you're out of school? And so I made myself a five-year plan, a 10-year plan. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I worked backwards, like, what do I want out of life? So 
I thought, you know, I want to be an artist. I want to be an artist that shows. I want to be a collectible artist. I want to be able to teach because I really love the interaction with students. Um, and, uh, you know, that list ended up growing, but then I worked backwards from that. Now, how do I make that happen? So the first, like with the teaching, I took my first job at Cambridge Center for Adult Education and um, did night courses, thanks to Claire Sanford, who gave me her gig. And then uh, um, Charlie Crowley, who was teaching at MassArt at the time, said, hey, Boris, you want to teach a night course here? And I said, sure. So, you know, so one thing after another. Um, and then ironically, for instance, following that train of thought of teaching, Carnegie Mellon at one point, when my dad left Carnegie Mellon, an opening occurred at the very bottom of the design um, department. And, you know, I got a call from them and they said, hey, would you be interested in applying? And I said, no, I just moved to Boston. Why would I want to teach there? And they said, well, why don't you just apply? So basically to appease them, and my father was really thinking that was a good idea, I sent my slides in, that's what we did back then, send slides in, and I got a call, you know, a month later or something, hey, guess what, you got the job, and I said, what? You're kidding me, right? I just bought a house, and um, then I, I was kind of thinking about, like, do I want to do this? And I thought, you know, maybe it's time for a change, and I sold the house and moved everything and bought a an industrial space in Pittsburgh and taught at Carnegie Mellon and realized I didn't want to teach in the design department. Although I like teaching, it wasn't, teaching design was not kind of my, I hadn't had enough design training to feel confident teaching that. So it, it gave me a lot of stress. Right. You know, which I feel really comfortable with metals because I live and breathe it. But design, so I, ended up doing, um, filling in for Carol Kamada as a uh, sabbatical replacement at one point. And then, you know, all sorts of teaching gigs ensued. Right, but you were doing your own work in your studio all the time. But I was doing my own work and learning what it meant to, to kind of begin a business as a studio artist. Right, because again, you know, it's like, so uh, I, I think it, uh, what uh, I went to woodworking school in 1988 and that's when I started becoming a woodworker and I think sometime in the early 90s if I recall I could have the time completely wrong I remember seeing your trussware pieces your trussware flatware trussware flatware is that a word yeah <laughs> that's it as in knives and forks and spoons mm -hmm. um, I believe it was an American craft that's yeah, I don't remember, but that's yeah, it was an American possible. craft, and it was like that was that was my first Boris Bally sighting <laughs> as an adult, and I guess at that point you are are you in the early nineties? Are you at CMU? Yeah, I I went back to Pittsburgh eighty nine something right, like that. so that's exactly one. Yeah, and right around that time I started exploring with making cutlery and you know getting it out there, and I started doing trade shows. I did uh, Baltimore West Springfield. Started doing the New York gift show. So more functional wear now. Yeah, more functional stuff like candlesticks and cutlery and platters and bowls and stuff like that. But um, I also did, I always kept the jewelry up, the, kind of the wearable wearable art 
stuff that interested me and the opportunities, I would chase down any opportunity. I said no to, to nothing. Everything was a potential and that was also what led to lots of inspiration was the challenge of, you know, hey, we're doing this kind of show. We're putting on a show called Stool Samples, which a friend of mine actually did. Stool samples. Stool samples. A play, were they actually stools or were they, and it was, was it a play on? It was a play on words and it was, right. they were making a, they were hosting a chair show. Um, and this is Wall to Wall Studios, which was uh, Jay Nesbitt and Bernard Wee, B. Wee, we used to call them. And they had just opened Wall to Wall Galleries and they invited me to the show. And ironically, right around that time, I met my soon-to-be wife who was going to med school and she was doing a GI uh, rotation and they were doing, I think she, she was attending a lecture about stools. Oh, as, know, as in actual stools. Actual stools. So it yeah, was really as in funny. stool samples. We always kind of laughed at the parallel of, you know, here I am working on a show that's called Stool Samples. And, right. Yeah. But so that challenge was given to me, provided an opportunity to design a chair. I'd never designed a chair. And I thought, you know, I bet you I could do that. So that's kind of the, how, the flavor of my creativity was driven by opportunities right. and possibilities. And, you know, um, somebody would curate an exhibition and say, you know, we're doing a show in um, Europe, um, in Prague, for instance. Joe Wood and Dan Jost put on the first international show I was ever in. It was called Jewelry's Epiphanies and said, hey, Boris, uh, you know those strange arm form things you're working on? Can you make one specifically for a show we're putting together? And I thought, wow, I'll make the best one yet. You know, I'll challenge the, the confines of the terms and see what kind of nutty, wonderful art contraption I can come up with and I did and it was an inspiration and I felt good about it and I continued that series that way. Right, so in many ways you used the situation to sort of create, getting into situations to create inspiration. Right, and once, for instance, I do one thing like that, then I'd be, I'd think, well, now that the show's over or the piece is gone, now what next? What would come next? And the way that I create is I tend to inform, I create kind of a library or a theme the way I did up till now is I'd create a theme of the, that year. So I'd find, for instance, the year, the trust where you mentioned the trust, um, the way that I discovered that unit, that, that kind of vocabulary, the ge geometry of the trust was I was waiting for my torches to get filled. Um, I forget where I went, Goss Gas, where was, I don't even remember where that was, but it was somewhere in Pittsburgh waiting patiently or impatiently, looking around at this place, like where the hell is my gas cylinder? And I'm looking up at the rafters and I see a truss. And I think, oh my God, that is one of the most beautiful forms and it's strong and it's light and it's airy and it's you know, geometric. So that's gonna be my theme. Let's go back and do that, so. Oh, and there's just so many wonderful versions of that. Pittsburgh has so many right. wonderful bridges Exactly. That cross and, and you know it's kind of interesting because I was when I was putting together my notes uh, for this episode and I looked at the trussware and of course I made the uh, I went through my bridge phase I think every woodworker goes through a bridge phase and the bridge phase always starts with the Swiss industrial designer Robert Mayer or Malier I can't pronounce his yeah, name yeah that's right and the most amazing though they weren't they weren't metal truss forms they were 
They were stressed concrete, uh, metal reinforced uh, concrete, but they were just the most gorgeous truss forms. I mean, they were the most elegant forms. And structural things are just a wonderful, they're just wonderful metaphors and just wonderful visual. Right, and that's what you know always has inspired me is often it's, it's either process or some kind of architectonic form or idea that finds its way into various aspects, like a vessel form would end up having that truss motif, you know, exploring that through raising or fabrication. And then, you know, like a, an arm form would have that detail in it and so on and so forth. So the next year might be expanded metal and that would work its way into every little pocket of every uh, vector of design. Right. So that, I found that a real good way to create is um, I think one of the hardest ways to create, I was actually talking to my class at Pocosin here about this, is that if because there are so many possibilities, you're sitting in front of a white piece of paper thinking, when, how am I going to initiate this? How am I going to start? That's the most difficult thing. But if you give yourself a constraint, you're suddenly, you can focus on solving the problem at hand rather than kind of sitting there dumbfounded, where do I start, you know, so. Yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting. Uh, about 15 years ago, I, I joined a gallery just to, uh, I'm not sure what my <clears throat> motivations were. Again, another false hope that somehow I could generate a living making art. But one of the real challenges I thought in the gallery was is that every, every month we did a themed show. So we did 12 themed shows through the, through the year, and I was like, wow, I'm really super uncomfortable with this notion. But it turned out I really liked the constraints of working within the theme. It gave, me a, it gave you the first step up into right. dealing with that blank sheet of paper. Right, I, I think it's really useful. When I was a, a teacher for um, Foundation Metals, I would always initiate this two by two project. I called it two by two because it was a two inch by two inch. And I, I listed literally 25 techniques um, that I required students to perform within the confines of that two by two inch square. And it was typed instructions. It looked like the most mundane, boring assignment. And every time that I would hand it out, people would just groan, oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. But some of the most creative pieces have come out of that and they couldn't believe that they were actually learning how to drill and saw and file and solder and score and fold and taper, you know, and, and bend and fabricate, all the stuff that you need to know to be able to do that sliding clasp that they were ogling that looked so cool, but that they didn't, the skills they didn't possess to be able to, to do that. But after the two by two square, they said, okay, now I understand, and now we can do, you know, progress to the next more difficult task. Right, and, and another example of, of doing that is, is also setting those tasks for yourself. I mean, giving yourself a problem to solve, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I mean, you know, growing up with a, a father who was a scientist, I thought I was gonna be a scientist, and then I realized I ended up being an artist, and I think that I shared some of the skills of a scientist in that problem solving is the funnest part for me. It's like uh, I did a, I did a, just a, a project for the house uh, about six, seven months ago 
where a, a neighbor who was moving gave me a whole box of bed slats. It was just bed slats. There were 35 pieces of, I think they were ash, two inches by 30 inches. <laughs> and the problem was I needed a coffee table for the house. And it was like, how could I use 35 pieces or however many, it was like 35 pieces that were two inches by three quarters of an inch thick by 30 inches long. And it turned out to be one of the most fun things I've worked on in, mm -hmm. in months, just because yeah. I gave myself those parameters yeah. and, on how to solve the problem. But uh, so getting back to you, um, you're at CMU, you're not teaching design now, you're filling in in the metals department. Mm -hmm. And I imagine it comes time for you to leave or it comes time for you to figure out what's next. Well, yeah, I guess. Uh, so that led me to teaching at the, you know, teaching a course at the University of Akron, thanks to Christina DePaul and um, starting my studio practice, having renovated a, the Kazanjan rug building at the time. Um, and uh, I had gone through a divorce of my, you know, initial partner. And, you know, I met Lynn Taylor, my, you know, love of my life. And we decided that Pittsburgh, we both decided it was time for a change. She didn't love Pittsburgh and I kind of needed to get out because of, you know, the, my divorce and, you know, right. I just needed a change. Well, edit out of the podcast that Lynn didn't love Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, no, you can say whatever you want, I'm do kidding. whatever you want. But, but we, we were wondering what city we need, as the talking heads say, we need to find a city to live in. So we thought, you know, Portland, Oregon, we loved, I loved the industrialness of Pittsburgh. And um, Lynn loves cities. And I, I don't mind cities because, you know, I can, you get everything you need and, you know, people are around. I like that. It's a, if you're near a, a city, you, you know, there are teaching opportunities and opportunities, whatever. So we were thinking Portland, Oregon, or Baltimore, Maryland, or Providence, Rhode Island. And so, and part of the, the reason we were looking at these cities is because, also because she needed to, she had just finished her um, MD at Pitt and was needing to do a residency and an internship. So we decided on Providence, Rhode Island because she matched at Brown and I loved the idea and we ended up moving to Providence and... Uh, and, and RISD was no part of that decision? RISD was not a part of the decision. That's the Rhode Island School of Design. Yeah, Rhode Island School of Design was not part of the decision. Um, although I had applied there to go to art school at one point and I greatly respected Jack Pripp who had been running the department. I think he had left by that point. Um, my dad, of course, being an industrial designer, knew all the RISD industrial design people um, and as a sidebar, you know, when we moved to Providence and I ended up um, buying and fixing up a beautiful building there, the Ryan Post building, which I just sold about a month ago, um, Ken Honeybell from RISD, the design professor, would bring his students through my studio to show his industrial design students what somebody making a living in the studio arts, you know, what it entailed and what I looked like. And, I would do my little song and dance, and I always appreciated that he had the generosity of spirit to bring his students through 
it was always a positive thing. And uh, Rhode Island College was nearby. Um, and so uh, Diane Riley would bring her students through, metal students. So Providence ended up being a, a wonderful place to call home. Um, coincidentally, it was very close to Boston, so I could um, maintain a relationship with Mass College of Art and with uh, um, Museum of Fine Arts Boston, Society of Arts and Crafts, while at the same time it was close enough to New York that I could end up having a relationship with the uh, American Craft Museum turned Museum of Art and Design. And, you know, and the gift show that I would end up doing numerous times. So was it around that time? So we crossed virtual paths again one more time when I was in a catalog called The Guild, mm -hmm. which was like the first of the big kind of online art retailers. I got in on the bottom ground of that group that later became the Artful Home, but I got my Guild catalog and there were you with mm -hmm. the very beginning of the transit pieces. I believe the bowls, were the bowls the first yeah, pieces? I think they were the first. Right, yeah. and there was like my next, there was the Roslyn Farm exit, there was the Trustware piece, and then there was like, <laughs> Well, there's Boris again. So right. was, did that work happen as you moved to Providence or was that predated? Uh, actually, I think the relationship with the Guild people um, began when I was still in Pittsburgh. Right. But it, I think they started mainly as publishing and advertising. Then they turned into wanting to do online retailing. And then as they blossomed and turned to Artful Home, they needed something splashy to advertise and um, the good thing about having, you know, very bold graphic work as I did with the traffic signs was that it ended up being loud and not subtle and that's what they wanted and it promoted well online. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, anyway, so it was a good relationship and actually it ended up, I milked it for what it was worth and they gave me a lot of good opportunities. At one point, they gave me a, a cover of one of their catalogs. They did. They I remember did. that. Yeah, and they sold tons of stuff, and I, you know, it helped me to make a living. Right. So, what was the the origins of the traffic pieces? What was the what was the inspiration for that? Yeah. So, the inspiration for the traffic sign pieces. It the was, transit collection. The, I, actually, I, I misspoke. Yeah. No, the it, that's fine. It's just it's traffic sign stuff that was the transit chairs and the DPW and DOT, it kind of robbed the names of the different institutions where I get the scrap. Right. Um, so in 19, I'd say about 1991, I got a commission. I was then with my ex. Um, we got a commission to make a fireplace set from the Society of Arts and Crafts in Boston. And w this one design was to make the base for a fireplace set that involved having two um, kind of shells that I could then fit, fill with concrete to create a hefty base for the tools, the, the fireplace tools. So I was looking around for some, some material to create this shape. Um, and having gone to Tyler and had their foundation, I learned how to raise metal, which is a kind of age-old technique of pushing metal around a metal stake. and I happened to have a stop sign in my you know, arsenal, in my studio, in my materials, and cut a circle and started banging away on this. And through the process of making that base, I realized, oh my god, this is, this is special. I'm, I'm 
being a bad boy, I'm taking a sign that people always kind of snicker. Ooh, he stole the sign. <laughs> you steal all your signs. So it was like the bad boy element. And it also had the graphic element with these beautiful, punchy colors that at the time, you know, I was really afraid to use color. It was more kind of ebony and silver and subtle stuff, concrete, very material uh, defined colors. And, uh, and then the, it had this recycled component. And I loved that the material itself was attainable and it was cheap and it, it had all sorts of messages to it. You know, the recycled message and the graphic element. Right. So I, I kind of had the aha moment and... I can't imagine that material is easy to work though. Well... And, and not lose the... I'm trying, to rem I'm trying to think of how you could form a stop sign and not just have all the paint peel off. Right, and part of that, that's a really good point. The part of that was that you had to have very polished stakes. And you know, when I'm raising a vessel, the graphics would be on the side of the stake, not the side you're hammering. And right. it would, you know, and over the years of using the material, I perfected the technique of, you know, how to keep the paint on, which signs to pick for what. Um, I started bending them, which signs bend, which signs snap, because of course traffic signs aren't designed to be bent, they're designed to be flat. Right. Um, also the surfaces change through technology, technological advances have changed. You know, at first they would paint them, then they'd use engineering grade facing, and then later, sadly, uh, honeycomb uh, prismatics right. for different, you know, higher reflectivity. Right. So that, you know, that's all this kind of stuff I learned over the decades of doing this, but that, it's kind of like you have to find, it took forever to find that one thing that could define me, and that ended up being kind of what I was, I guess, known for, everything else be damned. I mean, it, you know, I don't just do traffic sign stuff. I, you know, do a lot of the different work that you'd see on my website that involves, you know, fabricated jewelry or chandeliers or whatever it is, but I became like the traffic sign guy, which is kind well, of Well, but you know, the, the interesting thing about surviving as an artist is it's not like you can do one thing and survive. You right. do 10 things. Right. And uh, I, was, I was telling you before, because we're right now at the Pocosin School for the Arts and you're teaching with Bob Evendorf mm -hmm. and we're sitting here in the lounge, that's the people padding by, um, students of yours and the ceramics class. But you know, I tried to come up with production items all during my career, and they were all amazing flops. It's, uh, you know, you think you have a great idea and it, it doesn't catch on. Having a good production item is a real tool in being able to make it as a creative artist. You absolutely. have something you can bank on. Absolutely, and, and I found that you're absolutely right. You do have to do 10 things, and you also never know what's gonna hit. Yeah, exactly. And it's hard to come up with a production thing that doesn't rob you of your time yet is catchy enough that people want it. But you know, you could have ten production de designs and one of them will work and nine will be flops. You know, it's funny because one. I went of, ten for ten, by the way. Yeah. Well, whatever it is. <laughs> but like the, one of the kind of stupidest things I came up with, which was for the Society of North American Goldsmith Pin Swap was I'd, I'd started making keychains with the scrap from making this, the other stuff. And the,
keychains ended up becoming one of the most wonderful, successful pieces because they were basically like my calling card. I could stamp my name on the back and I got so much work from that. And they're stupidly simple to make. All right, they're not, they're actually very labor intensive because I insist on keeping them labor intensive. Right. Hand filed, hand sawed, but I've made, you know, tens of thousands of those things. And in tough times, they have been able to pay the bills and it's, am I real proud of them? Not necessarily, but I am proud that people cherish them and they know they come from me. And when they're looking for a interior design or a, or a, you know, an installation or something, they say, oh yeah, I have this keychain. I wonder if Boris could do this. And you know, I've gotten some interesting work from it. Right. You know, including Witch Witch Sandwich Shop, um, uh, Omaha, JCC, Comedy Central, you know, the weirdest places you'd never have expected. And it's all because of these keychains. So I just have, I bumped into the right thing. Right. No, I mean, I, you know, I've never discounted a good production item. And, and also it gives you some freedom to do some of the other things you want to do. Right. Um, so what were some of the other things you were doing alongside so, that series? Yeah, so um, the keychains was one of the kind of consistent selling items that I had was uh, also then coasters and trays and pretty much whatever was the byproduct of doing one thing, I saw what else I could design to do it. For instance, the trays were the byproduct of making the rims around the DPW platters. You know, here right. I have all these discs. What can I do with them? I, oh, I can make a serving tray. And what do I do with the coaster with uh, leftover from making the chairs? I'll make coasters. Um, what do I do with the leftovers that are too small to make coasters? I'll make keychains. So it was kind of like the Native American idea of using every part of the bison. Right. Because, you know, I had a lot invested. I had to go to the scrapyards, get the signs. It's really difficult, heavy stuff, which is part of the reason why I don't want to do that anymore now, because I'm getting older and it's physical. And um, You yeah. really pissed me off with the chairs. I was like, God damn it, Boris is now doing furniture. <laughs> well, I, and it's funny because, and what happened with that is, you know, I came up with that chair and I, I knew I had something. And I actually got a design patent on it. So I learned how to do that, which is kind of cool. And then, you know, next thing you know, if you make chairs, somebody asks you for a table to go with a chair. And I thought, wow, I wonder if I can do that. And then I made a table and can you make a dining room table? Sure, I can do that. And then, hey, you know, could, did you ever think of making something for the outside of a wall of building? Oh yeah, okay, sure. You know, so it kind of snowballs. And at this point, you have employees, right? I mean, you're and not generating all this work by yourself. Right. And so depending on, you know, and that changed from maximum six employees to minimum one. And now it's just me. But yeah, it, it, it swells and it gets lean depending on how much work is coming in. Right. And actually, another thing, you called your company you manufactured. I like that term because it's really ultimately everything is made by hand. Right, but it has actually, as I told my class, it actually came from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Oh, wow. And Fred Rogers was my teacher when I lived in Shadyside before I lived in the house that you know. I lived on Marchand uh, Street. And we went to school with Mr. Rogers' kids. And right, and I actually had Mr. Rogers as my teacher because he was the minister of the, the church that was on the same parking lot that my house that I grew up in was on and 
Shade, the Shady Lane Free School was what I went to for third and fourth grade or whatever it was oh, wow. before Liberty. And uh, Mr. Rogers would come in and he would sing his little songs and he had this one song that was, I'm a man who manufactures. I think it, you remember that song? And I think it might have been one of his guests that sang it. Oh. But the song always stuck with me, so that's how I came up with the term. Oh, wow. And so I'm sitting in my studio going, I'm a man who manufactures. Oh, wow. Manufactures things. I'm a man who manufactures. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. I am a man who manufactures. You manufactures. And what it is is a hybrid of embracing the handmade and the machines that we all tend to use. And I really do embrace kind of the design, industrial design component, multiples and I still love doing it by hand. So it's kind of the hybrid idea. That's that is a wonderful story because it's a Mr. Rogers story, which is Mr. Rogers, by the way, is totally Pittsburgh. It's so Pittsburgh. Mr. Yeah. Rogers was so Pittsburgh. Mr. Rogers is a Pittsburgh institution, so I'm yeah. glad there's a, a Pittsburgh tie to that. Um, so rolling along, one more question then. You recently had a major health incident. We're both getting into our 60s. We're both 62, we're the exact same age. How has that changed your perspective on making? How is, what are the changes affected by that and, and in thinking forward? Yeah, that's, that's a really pertinent, good question because I think about that a lot and I don't know the answer, but um, as you mentioned, I had a heart attack and a triple bypass and it was kind of a brush with uh, my mortality and moving forward, like how much time do I have? And it also has affected my thought about how we're makers, we put objects on this earth. How important is it to put more objects on this earth? You can't take it with you sort of thing. Um, so part of moving forward is do, do I valuing my health more than I ever have? Do I continue with this super heavy traffic sign stuff. Basically, life is short. What do I want to do with the rest of what I have left, whatever that is? And I definitely don't want to be lugging around heavy traffic signs, doing tons of production stuff uh, as I have. I want to, I don't know, I want to do work that has more to say, maybe less work with more to say. Right. And, you know, have a better footprint. Right. Um, and that's what, you know, to leave behind. That's, that's what I care about more, what, that, what uh, shape that will take, I do not know. Right now, I sold my big, huge production facility, studio building in the big city of Providence, and I just finished, you know, weeks ago, finished building a new studio in my backyard so that I can hopefully downsize and do a little bit more hand stuff. And, uh, you know, fabric, hand fabricate, and I don't know I'm a little scared of yeah. not knowing, but I'll have to give myself a theme and you know, figure out what I wanna do. Well, I, I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up. Thanks, well, Boris Valley, for being a part of the Why Make podcast, and as we always well, end it, why thank make? Thank you, yeah, why, why not, why make? Thank you, Eric. Eric Wolken from Childhood. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. Please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. 
visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the-y-make-project or go to the Donate to Why Make page on y-make.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.